miracles. Miracles. God still works miracles, doesn't he? He is still in the miracle working business, as we like to say. When we begin to talk about this subject, we need to have a definition of what a miracle is. So let me offer you a clinical definition of a miracle. You ready? Miracle defined. The suspension or violation of the laws of nature. The suspension or violation of the laws of nature. How many of you realize that in this room today, we are being governed by very real laws of nature? It's affecting every single one of us. Laws of physics, laws of chemistry, laws of biochemistry, laws of psychology and physiology. We're all being governed by these things, these unseen things that affect every one of our lives. And they're not all bad things, are they? In fact, if it were not for these things, we'd all be floating away right now. Or we would dissolve into our component parts. And really, these laws are very important because they establish for us normal and normalcy. They establish the mores of our culture. They actually establish some predictability. You know, predictability is okay, isn't it? It's okay to predict certain things. How many of you love to go on vacation? How many of you love to come home from vacation? Why? Because we want to get back into the predictability and the rhythm of life. Predictability is not a bad thing. So a violation then of these norms comes in the form oftentimes of a miracle. Now, I have a rock sitting here on the platform. Can anybody tell me why this rock, I bet Polly, our resident geologist, could tell us. She likes rocks. Why isn't this rock floating away? Anybody smart there with science? Why is, why, what is holding this rock to the ground? Gravity. Specific law of physics is tying this rock to the ground. But how many of you know that I have a greater force than the law of gravity on this rock? So I am going to effect work a miracle in a sense by reaching down and what? Picking up this rock. That's what a miracle is. It's power being extended to violate the laws of physics. A greater power has been extended to be able to do that. There is the basic definition of a miracle. It's an exception to the norm. Everybody cool with that? That's a miracle. Now, let me give you a quote here that's worthy to think on. Miracles are not designed just for you. Let that just set for just a second. So we see there's a, there's a flaw in the initial question. This is, where's my miracle? The first thing we need to get to is this. Miracles are not designed just for you. Every miracle of God is part of his great integrated plan of revealed truth. That's why God works miracles. Do we benefit from miracles? Yes. But they're not solely about you. They're actually woven in to the integrated plan of God at work on the planet today. There are other things going on with the working of miracles. Now, let me just share with you something that I have learned over my years of, of endeavoring to follow Jesus. I have set my life on an essential truth that is this. The gospel is more targeted toward God's glory than my comfort. I said again. The gospel of Jesus Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation. It is the mission of our life. It is why Jesus left us here and didn't immediately translate us to heaven after we were born again. 
We actually are here with a mission. To do what? To share the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the gospel is primarily targeted for God's glory and not my personal comfort. Can we all get our mind wrapped on that for a second? That's why the gospel is here. In fact, I've also learned that God doesn't oftentimes care so much about my comfort. He's more concerned about his glory. And sometimes my uncomfort will actually enhance his glory. I think the scripture bears that out quite clearly. Now, what does it have to do with miracles? It has a lot to do with miracles. Jesus did a lot of miracles, didn't he? One of my favorite verses in the Bible that I learned after becoming a Christian was the final, was the final verse in the book of John, chapter 21. Remember that verse? It kind of leaves you wanting more. John 21, 25 says, Jesus did many other things as well. He did a lot of things. If every one of them were written down, I suppose that even the whole world will not have room for the books that would be written. Kind of leaves you wanting more, doesn't it? Jesus did a lot of stuff we don't even know about, but he did a lot of stuff that we do know about. And his revealed truth lets us know. Now take a look up on your screen at the list of the miracles of Jesus. Now look at all these. I think we have them up there. We have a, we have a whole bunch of them. A list of the miracles of Jesus. Maybe look at them. There's a bunch of them up there, isn't there? There really isn't. Well, I guess that one didn't happen. There they are. The list, there's so many we couldn't get them on the screen. Look at all that. There's a bunch of them. We're going to go through every single one of them this morning and learn how Jesus did it. Just kidding. <laughs> this is just for effect. Jesus did a lot of miracles. And it was not just all physical healing, was it? There were many types and different kinds of miracles. As you look through the list, you see a ton of them. Now, if we're praying like Moses prayed, Lord, help me to know your ways that I may learn about you, then we need to ask ourselves the question, what are miracles for? I don't want to be overly scientific about this stuff, but we need to ask, what's the purpose of miracles? What's God trying to accomplish? If miracles are not solely about me and they are a part of God's integrated purpose on the world today and in the life of the believer, what's really going on? And what happens when we ask the question, where's my miracle that some of us Get stuck in that question. I want to give you five things. The first one we're going to elaborate on extensively, and the last four are going to move very quickly. What are miracles for? The first one, obviously, produces faith in God. Miracles help to produce faith in God. When you go back and look at the passage in Acts 5, it says, to such an extent that they even carried, look at this, they even carried the sick, in verse 15, out into the streets and they laid them on cots and pallets so that when Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on one of them. Also, the people from the cities in the vicinity of Jerusalem were coming together, bringing people who were sick or afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all being healed. Man, there was some activity going on there. Now, if we're going to take a few steps back and look at the passage we need to make a, an, an important observation of the context in which these great miracles were taking place. There's actually kind of a recipe for miracles, if you will, going on. These miracles were happening in the midst of fresh faith. Everybody say fresh faith. People were being born again. 
There was excitement. They were coming to know Jesus. They were responding to the gospel. And this fresh faith, everybody say fresh faith. It produced action. What were they doing? I love these words in this passage because it says they were actually going out and they were carrying the sick back. This says they carried and they brought them. And they were getting healed and they were getting delivered. Faith produced actions. You see, we want to see an uptick in miracles. Who wants to see an uptick in miracles? Man, I want to see an uptick. I mean, I want to see like a big tick uptick way up there. They can I tell you something? Then we need to get excited about the gospel again. We need to get so excited about our faith that we're actually bringing others into an environment where the gospel is being preached. And then we can fully expect miracles to be happening. In fact, Mark 16 says to go into all the world and preach the gospel and these signs shall what? Accompany, they'll actually go along with you as you begin to do this. So one of the ways that we see miracles on the uptick is in the context of fresh faith and evangelism. Let me ask you a question. Let me ask myself a question. When was the last time we were so excited about our faith that we invited a sick person to church? That's what they were doing because their faith was so fresh and they were so excited about the gospel. They were bringing people and it was electric and people were getting healed. And set free. I had the privilege of coming to the Lord early in life and getting christened, if you will, on the operation of the Holy Spirit on the mission field, particularly in Brazil. The Lord opened my eyes to some fantastic miracles at a very young age. I saw the context. It was in the context much like Acts chapter 5. We were going into the inner cities of Rio de Janeiro and Niteroi, Brazil, and we would, we would have evangelistic crusades, open air and in churches and in auditoriums, and, and the room would fill up with believers and unbelievers and believers who were bringing unbelievers and, and the sick and the demon-possessed, and amazing things were taking place. And I remember one particular story that sets a great example of what's happening here. This one woman came to one particular meeting, and she got born again. Born again, saved, excited. I remember the moment. She came back to the meeting a second night. And she brought her son with her. I did not meet her son until after the service because once we were done, we were all exhausted. We worked all day long trying to build a, a, a school out of the dirt. And we, and we made the church that night. We did the service. We were getting in the vans. And I was, as I was walking to get on the bus, this woman reached out and grabbed me. She happened to speak a little bit of English because my Portuguese wasn't that stellar. And she stopped me right there and said, would you pray for my son? Now her son was six foot two, big guy, at least 300 pounds. And she began to tell me that her son had never spoken, had never spoken. In fact, he had actually would go out into the yard and eat dog food with the dogs. Obviously extremely mentally handicapped. I'm exhausted. I'm tired. I just prayed for a thousand people. I was ready to go home. So I said, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll pray a little paltry prayer so we can get home to our pizza and shakes. But as I, cause I was exhausted. I'm just admitting my humanity, right? I was exhausted. So I, I, I turned and I began to pray 
and something began to happen. This six foot three boy, and her mom, his mom was more like, like five two, he began to growl like a dog. Now, my 16 year old self began to evaluate the situation like, oh my goodness. It's kind of the fight or flight begins to kick in. The first, the, the first thought was flight. But I began to realize, oh my goodness, there's something going on here. He began to growl. So I took my offensive posture. All right, I'm going to pray now, right? So I remember, I remember 16 years old, remember, I got my, head, my, my hand up on his head. I didn't have much theology back then, but I had a lot of faith. And I just said, in Jesus' name, spirit of dog, come out. Now, you can theologically parse that one all day long. <laughs> but I just began to, in the, in the name of Jesus, spirit of dog, come out. He fell straight back and landed on the concrete. Like just, a, just like a two-by-four plank would fall over. And I'm sitting thinking, oh, no. <laughs> the people in the bus are honking the horn. The mom's standing there looking at her son, passed out, not moving. I said, well, <laughs> God bless you. <laughs> God bless you. Just let me think. We're leaving. Bye-bye. So get on, the, get on the van. Off we go. Didn't, obviously, I was kind of wondering whatever happened, but we were ministering to so many people, you just kind of lose track. So a week later... In a different church service on a Sunday morning, after service, I was sitting in the front row, the evangelist was preaching. After service, the mom walks up to me. And then I didn't know who she was. She said, remember me? I said, no. Then she began to tell the story. I said, oh, yes, is your son okay? And then she pointed over to him. He was sitting on the second pew with his legs crossed, wearing glasses, reading the Bible. I went and introduced myself to him. He spoke. He introduced himself. He talked just as fluently as I'm talking to you right now. Completely and totally set free. God is a miracle-working God, isn't he? He's a miracle, miracle-working God. Now, the reason I tell you that story is because in the, in the context in which it happened, it was in the context of fresh faith of a woman who had just been born again, who brought back her infirm son, and God met in power in that place. You see, God's plan was never for miracles to be cloistered among the frozen chosen. It's not some Christian parlor trick we get out and play on each other. Miracles were actually intended to penetrate the norms of culture and society. And for God to say, I'm bigger than all of it. I made all of it. I can suspend the laws of physics and physiology and psychology and chemistry and biochemistry at a moment's notice. God likes to do that. And he loves to do it around unbelievers. The context. You see, Haggai 2 promises us that in the last days, the latter reign of the house of God will be greater than the former reign that we should expect an uptick in miracles and an uptick of the manifestation of the glory of God, but it will never come, it will never happen amongst the cloistered, frozen, chosen, holding out, waiting on Jesus to come. It's going to come on the backs of a zealous faith, a fresh faith on people whom Jesus is not stale any longer who have discovered the hidden man or the fresh man or the fresh quail. And we're excited about our faith once again. That's how we begin to experience an uptick 
and miracles. Now, if you permit me for a few moments, I want to chase a rabbit. Can I do that? All right, we may not even get to the last four points, but I want to chase this rabbit for a bit. It is a caveat. It answers the question, where's my miracle? But I'm believing, for, where's my miracle? Now, what I'm getting ready to share with you, I do want to set out another disclaimer, all right? I believe it's rooted in biblical truth, but it's also part of my life experience. What I've seen in my life, what I've observed in other people's lives as it relates to the pursuit of miracles for yourself or for those that you love and care about. Now, I say that to say this. It's okay to disagree with what I'm about, what I'm about, what I'm about to say, all right? I'm not presenting this as ironclad biblical truth, but I believe it's rooted in some biblical principles. But it's important for us as the body of Christ to get our minds wrapped around this because sometimes if we're asking the question, where is my miracle, and that miracle doesn't happen, it can shipwreck our faith. And it has shipwrecked other people's faith because we didn't have the whole counsel of God in a situation and not rightly dividing the word of truth. It'd be easy for me to get up here and say, I'm starting a miracle crusading campaign. Let's go. Everybody's going to get healed. But I've lived long enough and I've journeyed long enough. I've seen people healed and I've seen people not healed. And I believe the Lord has some answers for us in his word about miracles in the context of the corporate gathering of believers. We have Acts chapter 5, the excitement of that. Then we have the reality of James chapter 5. Both chapter 5s. Both speak to miracles, but, but both speaking to miracles in different contexts, in different situations. James chapter 5, verse number 13. You've heard this. Is anyone among you suffering? Then he must pray. Is anyone cheerful? He is to sing praises. Is anyone among you sick? Then he must call for the elders of the church, and they are to pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will restore the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, they will be forgiven him. Verse 16, therefore. Now, when you see a therefore, you need to find out what it's there for. Therefore is actually a very important word. What that therefore is there for, it says what I'm getting ready to say is in conformity to what I just said, what just preceded this. In fact, it's an oftentimes a word that's used in law and it's also used in math, the therefores, to offer some reasoning about what was just said, the context of these miracles. I just said the sick are going to get prayed for and be healed, but therefore this is what it means and how you get there. It says, confess your sins. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. The effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. Now, we're not going to unpackage all this this morning, but just a couple of things that I want you to see. If you have a Bible, I want you to underline the words, so that. Everybody see that word? So that you may be healed. What does so that mean? Oh, you need to do this in order for this to happen. So that seems to imply some prerequisites for we believers to manifest healing in our bodies. Some things that need to be in place to happen. Remember, James 5 is speaking to a context of believers. Acts 5 is speaking to a context of, ev of ev evangelism and fresh faith. 
Questions that we need to ask ourselves, specifically if we're believing God for a miracle of physical healing. Now, what I'm going to present to you here very quickly is not a formula. It is a pattern that we see operating here, specifically in this passage, a pattern. The first thing we see is confession of sin. This is for believers, confession of sins, confess your sins. Ultimately, all sickness is a result of sin, isn't it? All sickness is a result of sin. How do you get that? I mean, what did I do? No, I, don't, I mean, when it all started in the fall of the Garden of Eden, when death came. All sickness is a result of ultimately sin and the fall. Some ongoing sicknesses in our life are actually results of continued sin. You know that? Sometimes we're sick because we're sinning. Science has explored a lot in this area. We know things that we didn't know before. In fact, they've made some fascinating connections between our health and our stress levels. Stress oftentimes perpetuated by bitterness and unforgiveness and anger can cause your adrenal gland to do some really funny things and begin to destroy your immune system. Are you following me? In other words, it's always not just enough for us saying, Lord, where's my miracle? But I believe the Holy Spirit says, let's look at you for a second. That there may be some sin that needs to be confessed first. That we need to take a little bit of responsibility for what we need. Confess your sin. Number two, not just confess it to God, but it says confession to one another. This is interesting too. That in these moments of sin, it's not to be confessed in a vacuum, but actually in the context of faith. That we're supposed to help each other. What's going on? What's happening? Confessing our sins to one another. How much does that go on? Now you got to have everything signed in triplicate to make sure we're not going to be slandered against. Confess your sins one to another, not to everybody either. I mean, there's a few people. Pray for me in this. What's going on? Why am I continuing to struggle with this sickness? And number three, it's this prayer. There's confession of sin, confession one to another, and then there's prayer. In other words, it's inviting Jesus into the sin and into the sickness. You got to invite Jesus in. Lord, what's going on in this? And in that context, what begins to happen? Miracles begin to take place. It's funny, one time I was praying for a guy who'd been a believer for a very long time. And he came up. He said, I need to be healed of this particular thing. It was, um, it was high cholesterol. And I said, brother, I'm willing to pray for that, but is there any sin that you need to confess to as it relates to this sickness? And he began to tell me a little bit about his diet. You know where I'm going, right? All of a sudden, well, maybe I need to make some changes first, you know, to expect a greater healing, to arbitrarily pray for healing. Are you following me here? In other words, in the household of faith, we as believers have a responsibility unlike unbelievers before we ask for miracles of healing. Is it fair to say that? We have a responsibility to first take the long look in the mirror and say, Lord, is there anything of what I'm struggling with connected to any possible sin? If so, I'm going to confess that. I'm going to deal with that. I'm going to pray. I'm going to invite Jesus, the one who forgives and heals, into the sin and into the sickness. Amen? 
So I believe when you look at Acts 5 juxtaposed to James 5, we see two different contexts for healing to happen. So I'm encouraging all of us, if you're asking, Lord, where is my miracle? Let's go to James 5 and let's look at what the therefore is therefore. And see, perhaps the Lord is wanting to deal with some stuff in our lives first before a miracle of healing even begins to visit us. Just perhaps, just offering that. Just because you don't always get the miracle you want doesn't mean you are loved by God any less or out of his favor. You hear that? I said this for a very important reason because I talk to a lot of believers that will tie their relationship to God and their favor of God on their life to a miracle that they didn't get. And they begin to think of themselves less. Never tie those two things together. Just because I didn't get the miracle that I wanted doesn't mean I am out of favor with God and he doesn't love me. Okay? What's the very definition of a miracle? The violation of the laws of nature. Something out of the ordinary, out of the norm. What does that mean? That means by and large, you are not going to walk in miracles every single day of your life. The very definition of a miracle is something that happens out of the norm. So then what's the norm? Just real life. And that's not popular preaching. And again, I'm maybe straying off into opinion here, but I've served Jesus 27 years and I've watched this truth to be reality. I have seen extraordinary miracles and I've seen extraordinary unmiracles. It's real, isn't it? Let me tell you about a guy called the Sad, Sad Sam. Sounds like a Dr. Seuss book. Sad Sam. So the man that led me to the Lord was a powerful influence in my life. Great guy, loved the Lord, but he wasn't perfect. And he struggled with a condition in his leg called phlebitis. And he, and he, and he, and he prayed for years and years and years to, to get healed of this condition. And I'll never forget, we were living in Dalton, Georgia at the time, and um, he had come up to visit, and we were, had just left lunch, and we were walking down the street, and he said something to me that I've never forgotten that was so sad, sad Sam. He said this, I just can't seem to get in position to get healed. I just can't seem to get in position to get healed. And I thought to myself, oh my goodness, what a tragedy to think that it's up to us to get in some position to gain the love and favor of God to get the miracle that we want. I said, Lord, this cannot be, this doesn't, this doesn't make any sense to me. I believe in miracles. I believe we should contend for miracles and never stop contending for miracles. But when those miracles do not happen, never put God on trial. Never put his love on trial. Never put your salvation on trial. Never put his heart on trial. Never put his goodness on trial. Because the moment you put God on trial, when you don't get the miracle that you think you should get, you've missed the whole point. You see what I'm saying? Yes, God works miracles. Yes, we contend for miracles. And the truth of the matter is, you're going to get your miracle. Either your circumstance will change or there'll be an explosion of grace upon your life to cause you to be able to endure whatever circumstance it is. A miracle is guaranteed. 
Let God define how it ultimately looks. Amen? I know that's a lot to chew on. It's a lot easier for me to get up here and just spout miracles and lay hands on everybody and push them to the floor. But God's word is clear on these matters. Because I have found out something. Your level of disappointment, discouragement, delusionment, and depression will rise to meet your level of unrealistic expectations. You see, that's why we study God's word. That our expectations are set appropriately. Our expectations are set in the person of God. That's who they're set in. Because he's good. Regardless of what he does or what he doesn't do. Amen? Can we get our hearts hearts wrapped around that one? Let that just soak in just for a moment. We're going to blow through these last three or four real quick. Why miracles produces faith in God? Yes. Number two, produces a fear of God. A fear of God, that awe and reverence that's felt when the presence of a higher authority is exerted on something else that's being controlled by the norms of culture and society and science. When God steps into the picture and does things that are extraordinary, what does it do? Wow. Awesome. The word awesome is preceded by three little words called A-W-E, which is what? Awe. God loves for us to stand in awe of him. Miracles should produce that. Exodus 7, 5 says, And the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I stretch up my hand against Egypt and bring the Israelites out of it. Exodus 7, 17. This is what the Lord says. By this you will know that I am the Lord. With the staff that is in my hand, I will strike the water of the Nile and it will be changed into blood. Jeremiah 32, 20. You perform miraculous signs and wonders in Egypt and have continued them to this day, both in Israel and among all mankind, and have gained the renown that is still yours. Isn't it good to stand in awe of God? Miracles produce a fearful awe and reverence when God shows up on the scene. Produces faith in God, produces the fear of God. Miracles glorify God. Let me say this real quick. If miracles do not glorify God, it is not a miracle. It is a deception. We got to note that here. It's very important. One of the great signs of the time is there are going to be false miracles. And they're going to seek to glorify a man or glorify a methodology. If a miracle doesn't immediately point people to Jesus and God, it's not the kind of miracle we're looking for. Don't be deceived. It should glorify God. Miracles should never be centered around a person. But always point people to God. Can you imagine how dangerous it would be if the Holy Spirit gave any one of us ultimate control of the gift of healing? What might happen? What we might have the tendency to do? That's why the Holy Spirit controls these gifts and releases them just as he determines and as he wills, not how we will. Jesus never started a healing campaign. He never had a healing crusade. He never went to the printer and had these big Banners, come to the Mount of Olives for the healing and miracle crusade. And we take credit cards and all forms of payment as well. God forbid, right? Jesus never started campaigns, did he? You know what he did? He sent regular folk out saying, these signs shall accompany those who believe. This is what you're going to do. Because I did it now, you're going to do it. No bells, no whistles, no frills. Regular people. Not many noble ones, not many famous ones, just regular folk. Because he hasn't chosen many noble ones. He hasn't chosen many wise. He chose you and he chose me to go out and work wonders for his name in the context of going into all the world 
and preaching the gospel. Number four, encourages obedience to the word of God. When God performs a miracle, he prompts you to do what he says, doesn't it? It's like, oh my gosh, he is real. Ever had those moments when God does something for you? It's like, oh, Lord, I think I will obey you now. I like this verse in Judges chapter two and verse seven. The people served the Lord throughout the lifetime of Joshua and of the elders who outlived him and who had seen all the great things the Lord had done for Israel. Who had seen all the great things the Lord had done. When miracles are happening in your life and around you, it's a continual reminder of who God is and for why we should obey him. And number five, and lastly, I like this one. It exposes and provokes religion. One of the purposes of miracles we see in Acts chapter five is it provokes and exposes religion and religious spirits. Look at this. Then the high priest in verse 17, and then the high priest and all his associates who were members of the party of the Sadducees were filled with jealousy. It provokes religion. If I could borrow from the great spokesman Al Gore, and an inconvenient truth. Here's the inconvenient truth. Miracles mess up things. Miracles absolutely mess up things. When miracles begin to happen, when the laws of nature and physics and physiology and biochemistry is overcome by the power of God, can I tell you, it messes up the atmosphere. All of a sudden, norms and mores and predictability goes out the window because the unpredictable, amazing God intersects chronos time with his kairos time and he steps in. Heaven comes to earth and things begin to shake and religion hates it. When miracles come, they mess up religion because religion hates it because it's something that it can't control. And God says, no, I'm not giving you control. I exercise complete and total control. Amen? So you can expect when miracles come, some people aren't going to stay. They're not going to be able to handle it because it messes things up. Don't you want God to mess things up? It was said of the people in the books of Acts, in the book of Acts who went and said, they turned the world upside down. How many of you know when you start turning things upside down, it makes a mess? I dare you to go home and start turning stuff upside down and see if it makes a mess. Just walk through your house and anything that can be turned upside down, turn it upside down. Just go for it. Trash cans, laundry baskets, apple juice, the crib. <laughs> when things get turned upside down, it makes a mess, but it is a glorious mess because God is in the midst of it all doing what he does and he does it oh so well. So in conclusion, what do we do? Hebrews 13, 8, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. But he has shown us his ways that we too may be imitators of Christ and do what he did and expect him to do what he does through us. And that's how it works. John 14, 12, love this verse. I tell you the truth, anyone who has faith in me will do what I have been doing. He will even do greater things than these because I am going to the Father. If there was anything I think Jesus would say to us would be something like this. Quit asking me to do something that I have empowered you to do. It's not always us, well, if God wills it, if God wills it. No, just go heal the sick. Go cast out devils. 
You do it. How are you doing it? Christ in you is doing it through you, but it's still you doing it. Don't acquiesce and abrogate what God has called you to do for him to do it. You do it. I should do it. Next time I'm walking through the checkout lane at Walmart and I notice the girl sniffling, where's my fresh faith, sister? The kingdom of God's come close to you today. I'm going to pray for you right now. In Jesus' name, just be healed. God bless you. And walk out the door. You may never know what happens, but a miracle may show up and visit her life. And she's, who was that man? Don't ask Jesus to do things he has called you to do and called me to do. He has commissioned us. And I promise you, if your faith is fresh and there's excitement around the gospel, this is going to be as natural to you as breathing. Naturally, he's breathing. It's just we've got to rediscover it and rediscover who we are in Christ. Amen?